welcome to Women's Health, Wisdom, and Wine, a weekly conversation with practitioners, providers, patients, and healers about complex reproductive medicine and women's health challenges, the value of an integrative approach to these challenges, many of the women's health topics you're already thinking about but uncomfortable talking about, and my personal favorite, wine. I'm your host, Dr. Lorena White, an integrative reproductive medicine and women's health provider, licensed acupuncturist, clinical herbalist, and a former labor support doula in the Washington, D.C. metro area. My goal is to bring women's health-specific evidence and expertise to the forefront of daily women's health and wellness news through informative conversations. If you have ideas, questions, and specific topics that you would like us to cover in future podcast episodes, please leave them in the comment section or send us an email at info at To learn more about our team's approach to care, visit our website at www.larenawhite.com. As you enjoy the podcast, conversations, and wine time, remember to follow the podcast, leave a five-star rating, and tap on the bell to make sure you never miss an episode. Let us know what is your favorite topic, who has been your favorite guest, and who would you like to hear from on the next pod. Most importantly, share the podcast and your favorite episode with a friend or colleague. Lastly, remember that this podcast is not designed to be a substitute for a bona fide relationship with a licensed or certified healthcare professional. Coming up, I talk with Susan Salinger about the three reasons behind the marginalization of women in healthcare, the difference between blame and personal responsibility, and the play nice persona. We'll join the conversation after a brief word from our partner. Maintaining your strength and a healthy heart as you age helps promote healthy living and hence quality of life for all people as they age. To help prevent the natural decline of muscle and heart function, it's important to make sure you're getting the nutrition your body needs, and not just any nutrition, but science-backed nutrition, like life, by the AminoCo. You can take AminoCo's life formula as part of your normal routine to help maintain muscle mass as you age, maintain good heart health, and increase longevity as you age. AminoCo's life is a patented blend of essential amino acids that works to improve quality of life and lengthen total lifespan so you can stay healthy and active as you age. Life has been shown in clinical trials to clinically improve blood lipid profiles by significantly reducing triglycerides, LDL, VLDL, and total cholesterol. This product has also improved physical function in patients with heart failure, and they had the science to back it up. Life is 100% science-backed, and it is designed for heart health and active aging, which are crucial for total lifespan. So why Aminoco? Life works by triggering muscle protein synthesis, which is the body's mechanism for repairing and building muscle. When tested against any protein source, life is more than three times more effective on a gram-for-gram basis at stimulating muscle growth and repair. I know just how important it is for my quality of life and staying healthy as I age. You can check out their science by visiting aminoco.com backslash LW30. I've been on the lookout for something that could help me support healthy blood flow and help preserve heart strength and function while also helping me maintain healthy triglyceride and LDL cholesterol levels. Furthermore, something that tastes great and is easy to incorporate into my daily routine. What's even better is that AminoCo's Perform was created by former Harvard professor and well-renowned clinical researcher, Dr. Robert Wolf. If you're looking for a nutritional advantage when it comes to maintaining muscle mass and cardiovascular health as you age, I recommend you give life a try. And right now, you can get 30% off 
when you visit aminoco.com backslash LW30. That's the letters L, W, and the numbers 30. Again, right now you can get 30% off LW30 when you visit aminoco.com backslash LW30. That's the letters L, W, and the numbers 30. Knowing how to advocate for your own health care can mean the difference between healthy outcomes, years of needless suffering, and even death. Do not make another health care decision, major or minor, without reading this behavior book. Seriously, this was such an amazing read. And I had to invite the author, Susan Salinger, to join us today to talk about some very important topics of conversation regarding how we, as women, manage and also mismanage our health. So Susan, please introduce yourself and talk to us about your book, Sidelined. Oh, with pleasure. And thanks so much for having me. Um, let's see, who am I? That's, that's a question I've been trying to answer for years. But basically, I'm a writer. I was in business with my husband for about 25 years. We produced management training films for business and industry, and I wrote the scripts. And then after we retired, I went back to school and got very interested in medical anthropology. And some of the things I learned in my classes are, are really what led to this book. Plus a personal experience that I had that I do want to share because I don't want it to happen to other women, which is that I agreed to have some surgery that I was sure I didn't need. Nevertheless, I not only agreed to it, but I insisted that it be done sooner rather than later. So I was, you know, I had the surgery. It was absolutely not necessary. There was nothing wrong. But the after effects, I mean, I was appalled at myself. I was furious at myself. I was ashamed of myself. And there were so many options I had. I mean, I could have waited. I could have gotten a second opinion. I didn't even give myself time to think it through. So that really, plus the information I learned in my classes, is what led to the book. And I think the book is a valuable read for women that need to make a health decision so that you don't make the same mistake I did. Wow. A lot to unpack even then, because I heard second opinions. I heard, you know, I knew I didn't need surgery, but I had it anyway. And I bumped it up even earlier. A lot to unpack there. So we'll get into those things. Um, So in general, women are consistently being marginalized. And as a result, we hesitate to assume control of our own care, Mm -hmm. especially brown and black women. So what do you feel is behind this medical crisis? Well, I think a couple of things. I think, first of all, women are marginalized, obviously. And I think that there's really basically, in my opinion, three reasons for that. The first reason is that women's diseases get much less research funds than men's diseases. We know less about women's bodies. The research is not up to par. It's not up to the standard of of male illnesses. For example, Prostate cancer gets much more research money than cervical cancer, uterine cancer, ovarian cancer. Those three are much more fatal, but it's prostate cancer that gets the money. Right. Um, the second thing is that uh, women researchers get less funding and are publicized less often. Their research is, you know, is not published much is published much less often than men's. 
So if you're a woman researcher <laughs> researching a woman's disease, you're going to find yourself more than likely at the bottom of the funding barrel. Right. And I think the third reason is, frankly, a lot of our diseases are a little harder to diagnose. We get a lot of chronic illnesses. We get a lot of autoimmune diseases. In fact, I think it's like over 70% of autoimmune diseases, or maybe it's even 80%, uh, go to women. And those are so tough to diagnose. And that does lead us into second opinions. But it can take up to five years to get a diagnosis for an autoimmune disease. So I think those are the reasons, some of the reasons that women are marginalized. Black and brown women are certainly marginalized more often than white women. But we have our own issues. I mean, all women are marginalized. It's a question of yes. who gets marginalized more. I don't know. Right. It's the marginalized battle, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you're right. And it's and it's we're joking about it and you know, keeping things light, but I love how you broke that down because it's not even a single reason. It's a no. multi-tiered, multifaceted reason, you know, stemming from research to not even seeking a second opinion to being undervalued, under-resourced. And again, all happening inside a healthcare system that, as anybody who's heard me talk for more than 20 seconds knows that I think is broken. Um so, yeah, and I think, again, this is where the change begins with us, where we cannot continue to let the healthcare system right. run things. We have to start changing it from the inside out with our dollars and with our voices. And that's hard sometimes, especially yeah. coming from a marginalized perspective and viewpoint. So in tandem, we often downplay on our own and ignore our own system, um, symptoms yeah. to avoid being labeled as difficult or worse angry, right. making it all the more challenging to stand up for oneself. So why do you think this is so? Well, I think, first of all, that women have really been taught, we're socialized to play nice. We don't want to be rude. We don't want to rock the boat. Um, and I think we're afraid. I th One woman actually told me that she would never ask her doctor for a second opinion because she was so concerned that she would get a black mark on her record, or, you know, be labeled a difficult patient, that she was afraid that would follow her throughout her, her medical career, if I can use that term. Sure. Um, and I, I think that's really important. We, we really want to be good patients. We want to be friends with our doctor. We're interested in a relationship. And I think that although I think all of that is important, I think it can also do us a disservice depending on the circumstances. So true. So true. And I, again, even in your book, you talk about that asking for a second opinion. And one of the things I often advocate for, especially when I'm talking to our clientele, is again, if you don't believe me or you don't like what I'm saying or it's just not sitting right, even if it makes sense to you, ask someone else, but ask somebody else who's also right. going to give you the good, the bad, the ugly, and That's everything right. in between. Mm -hmm. And you may not like what I'm saying, but that does not make it less true. But so that you don't feel that this is one-sided or you know lopsided or something else, seek that second opinion, but make sure they're giving you a complete 100, you know, 360 degree perspective about everything that's involved in making this decision. And I think a lot of times clientele is either interested in hearing what they want to hear. And mm -hmm. if their doctors mm -hmm. don't say what they want to hear, yeah. then, you know, they're not seeking a second opinion or vice versa. They hear what they want to hear, 
which may not necessarily be 100% beneficial or advantageous for them. And they don't offer a second opinion because they got what they wanted, even if it's not the best thing for them. So I think, again, even this response um, is multi-level and multi-tiered and so many different facets play into decision-making. You know, there's so much to unpack on what you just said. <laughs> I, really, first of all, um, I wanted to say that I think as patients, and I did not realize this, we don't realize how, how difficult a diagnosis can be. I mean, sure, if you break your leg and you go in complaining of leg pain and the, the x-ray shows it's broken, that's a no-brainer. You don't even have to go to med school for that one. But right. women get so many diseases that have similar, well, autoimmune diseases, let's just go back to that for a minute. They have similar symptoms. And some of them, many of them don't have a definitive test. So the, the doctor has to guess, or really as to what your particular disease may be. And I read, which really shocked me that there's about 20 or 30,000 different diseases out there, some of which, many of which have similar symptoms. So right. sometimes for the doctor, a diagnosis can be like looking for a needle in a haystack. And I think that that's one reason that second opinions are really so important. You know, I read a wonderful, just a sentence that really meant something to me talking about perceptual bias is that we all see what we want to see. The same symptoms can be stress to a psychologist, a stomach ache to a gastroenterologist, mm -hmm. um, inflammation to, to a rheumatoid arthritis guy or woman, you know, yeah. so it's really not as easy as it seems And your doctor may be incompetent. I mean, that happens. There's people in every profession that are better than others. I mean, that's no question, but it isn't necessarily so. Right. Um, so that was the first thing I wanted to say. But yeah. th there was something else you said, too, about really uh, understanding what the doctor says. This is going to blow you away. But only about 15% of women will tell their doctor when they don't understand something. So that means that 85% of us leave the doctor's office being unclear what it is he or she just told us. Yeah. And so I think that that is a real, real issue. And I, I think another reason women are marginalized, and this is, I don't mean to blame women, I don't mean it like that, but sometimes our behavior is a little bit shocking when you think mm -hmm. about that. 85% um, of us don't understand. Wow. Yeah. And I don't even put that all on women because no. not only we don't know that we, what we don't know. And right. so right. a lot of medical jargon and a lot of terminology that doesn't make sense. We can't even repeat the word because we don't know what the word is right. to even right. express that we don't understand. Right. And again, I'm going to sound like a broken record about going back to a broken system where, yes. you know, 15 minutes, 18 minutes, that is not enough time right. to explore and explain, you know, a condition or a symptom or the possibilities for, you know, its origins and the, talk about the evolution. It's just not enough time. Correct. And so when yeah, totally. if you added more time, I mean, literally triple the time and given someone yes. an hour appointment, yeah. Yeah. then we can go into having a conversation and there is time to explain and ask and go have that back and forth. But right. in 15 minutes, not only is there no time to ask into a symptom, that symptom usually is coupled with some other symptoms right? and understanding the constellation of symptoms instead of just this one isolated symptom. Cause mm -hmm. one symptom can be associated like you just mentioned yeah. with 12, 15, you know, or yeah, more sure. different, sure. you know, diagnoses. Right. right. And it's unfair. And 
one thing that I realized is that our in our firm, like our shortest appointment is an hour long. Wow. And so you can ask questions. We can have a discussion about what this means. You can raise your hand and say, that wasn't clear, or I don't understand what word that is, or, you know, that kind of thing. And that sets the tone for not only a good provider client relationship, but also a little bit more safety so that more things can be shared. Right. Because again, with, you know, that 85% not asking questions or not understanding comes with, you just mentioned like 50 million things in the last two minutes. And I can't even even have time to go back to the first thing you mentioned. Right, right. And I can only ask one question. You know, so, that's why I always recommend, I recommend a couple of things. Let's just get practical for a second. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, I think first of all, when the doctor says you have disease X, mm-hmm. I think it's really important to say, what else could this possibly be so that you yes. have some possibilities? And the second thing, I, at least that I always do, and I do recommend, is I have them write down the clinical name of my disease so that I can mm-hmm. come home and look it up on my computer. Or if I don't have a computer, I can go to the lab. I mean, whatever. Yeah. But I do my own research. Does what the doctor said, does, is what he or she said, does it match the symptoms that I'm describing or perhaps fail to describe? I don't know. Right. So I think that those two things are really important. And then, and I I try now because I just realized that 85% of us don't, (laughs) is I repeat back in my own words what I heard the doctor say. And that gives the doctor a chance to confirm what I heard or to say, well, no, I didn't mean that. I meant this. So I think those are really important things that a patient, any patient, man or woman can do before they leave the doctor's office. I think and that, that is was. what you just described was self-advocacy. Yes. And unfortunately, yes. that requires an agency that most patients, mm-hmm. most clients and sure. women in general do not have. And actually, it's the provider's job to be initiating that repartee, that conversation Absolutely. that I said X. What did you hear? Let me mm-hmm. clarify. Mm-hmm. It's an active listening type of dynamic. But the provider who is higher in this hierarchy of, you know, client provider, that is the onus of them. And again, those dynamics start to shift when that's not happening. And also that's another reason why if it's not happening, we've got to put on, you know, our cloaks and start leading it and advocating for ourselves. And I think that's where that kind of dynamic is needs to shift, but where we're not quite given the agency well, or empowered me, enough to do so. Let me underscore what you just said. I'll tell you an experience I had where I had a, a biopsy on a, I don't know what, well, it turned out to be a cyst actually, but I had a biopsy on something and I, I asked the doctor a question. It was the only question I asked. And I mean, I talk a lot. So when I, <laughs> the only question I asked, <laughs> that's a miracle. But his answer was, why don't you leave the driving to us? So in terms of, do you think I asked any more questions? Uh-uh. I just right. shut my little mouth, you know. So you're And right. that is a silencing tool because, again, it's that, um, I guess, that overreach in terms of what is the relationship here. Mm-hmm. And if I want an engaged patient client so that I can, you know, we can meet in the middle and do this thing together. Right. And when that type of relationship begins, as I always talk about, that's a red flag and it's a red flag that needs to be addressed. You cannot keep going to that person because your needs are not being met. Right. But every time as an individual, we continue to feed into and support 
providers and physicians that treat us this in this way mm-hmm. with a lack of respect, a lack of regard, um, and pretty much in a paternalistic way. Yes. When we continue to feed into that, all that says is, is it ain't, ain't broke, so I'm, I'm not going to fix it or I'm not going to yeah. do anything different. Right. right. And it's almost rewarding bad behavior. Yes. And that's one example, and I'm so glad you included it in don't keep going to, don't refer, don't, you know, allow anybody that, you know, who you care about to go back to that person. Mm -hmm. So then they can start feeling the hit and find someone else. Right. And that's how we, you know, reclaim our, our our power in the healthcare system. So while longstanding lifestyle choices, negligent health behaviors, and even genetics underlie most, if not all of our health issues, Women, more so than men, assume the blame for serious illnesses. So what do you see as the root cause of this dichotomy? Well, I think there's a couple. Um, I think, first of all, women's bodies, I mean, historically speaking, women's bodies have been demeaned, denigrated, whatever the word is, for years and years and years. I mean, let's go back even to the ancient Greeks. You know, Aristotle called us mutilated males and and. Plato, we've considered the womb to be like a predatory animal. I mean, and we've internalized that to a certain extent. As late as the Victorian age in the 18, I guess that's the 1800s, women were getting uh, over having their ovaries removed and their uterus hysterectomies to to keep them calm and to to mm-hmm. control their behavior. In 20 or 2020, 2020, 20, I guess it was, I don't know, 2019, somebody called menopause was, it was almost akin to murder. I mean, that, that people, women who were in menopause were, were homicidal. homicidal. And, And today we still can't control our own bodies. And I think that we've internalized that some of us to a certain extent, but I think another reason, and, and this is something we can't, you know, do something about history. Of course we can't change, but I think honestly, the wellness movement, as important as it's been for for all patients, not just women, and I think I want to, you know, really underline that I think it's given up, given some wonderful wellness tips. But it right. also it's based on the assumption that if you just follow these tips, if you do what you're supposed to do, you're going to live healthily ever after. And that ain't necessarily so. I mean, I wish <laughs> it was that simple. Then we would all go out and do what we're supposed to do and live forever. But it doesn't work that way. And so I think that the positive, excuse me, the positive thinking movement, that piece of it has done not only women, but men a disservice. We only have so much control over our own bodies. Um, You know, as you said, there's genetics, there's the environment, there's the amount of stress you feel. There's all kinds of things. Yeah. I, I think those are the two basic reasons that women feel so much shame. And boy, do we. Definitely so. And even going back to the root word of hysterectomy, and that's disparaging. And it's based on the condensation of the larger medical community and using, like you mentioned before, medical anthropology and seeing things under that lens. We even words like hysterectomy, which is based in hysteria. And if we just dress her uterus and take her uterus out, she won't be crazy anymore or she won't be acting the way she is or she won't do. So we'll just take her uterus out and that'll solve her and that'll make her more docile and amenable to our wishes and our demands and our, again, all of that. Right. And so women requested this sometimes on their own. Sometimes their husbands did, but often they think it was under the impression (laughs) that, oh, this is this is what's been told to me. Right. This is what's making me crazy. So if I just remove it and get rid of it, then I'll be fine. Exactly. 
So again, using that medical anthropology lens, how do you see this book addressing this lack of overall sense of agency in the conventional healthcare system? Oh, that's an important question. And nobody's ever asked me that quite like that before. I love it. I think that I want to be careful how I answer this. Let me think for a minute. Sure. I think it's important for women to recognize some of the behaviors, some of the things we may do to contribute. I won't say we don't contribute to the system, but we don't fight it. And I yes. think that that's a better way to frame it. Mm -hmm. um, the behaviors in the book, frankly, I was unaware of. And, and right. I consider myself good at this because I took all these classes. But the, the way I, let me back up a minute. I interviewed about 50 women. Mm -hmm. And um, I was very surprised to find similar behaviors between the women, even though they had different diseases. I mean, they all were felt, or not all, but most of them felt ashamed. Most of them put themselves last, not first, you know, that kind of thing. Most right. of them did not get second opinions. They hesitated to speak up. And I think that <clears throat> in order to change those behaviors, first, we have to recognize them. We have to yeah. learn to really how we don't advocate for ourselves so that we then can change that behavior and learn to advocate for ourselves. Right. And incidentally, this is a good time to, to plug the book a minute because sure. there's a resource list at the back of the book that is really the most important part of the book in many ways because it tells you how to research your symptoms, your doctor, your hospital. I mean, some hospitals are good for cardiovascular surgery and some... Right less good. I won't say bad because they're not, but you know, some are better than others, just like anything else. So please, please, please use the resource list at the back. It's very important. Absolutely. And I think, again, you highlighted two terms and two words that I think we often use interchangeably when they're different, they're absolutely different. And you mentioned blame. And I think there's a component of self-blaming Mm -hmm. And even a component of me, and I'll take a responsibility of blaming the healthcare system, mm -hmm. um, because I do think there's, we're working inside a infrastructure or healthcare system that is, just needs to be fixed. Right. Um, there's just right. too I many agree. different places that, that it is broken. And that brokenness just filters down in terms of creating and educating broken physicians and providers. And then, you know, just that trickle down. But there's also a sense of personal responsibility. Right. And that's, not necessarily blame, but there is a personal responsibility that we as individuals have in terms of our health care and the decisions that we make. And be, being educated about and being knowledgeable of is not always going to be coming from your provider. Right. And even the best providers with the best intentions based on the system that they're working in, and keep in mind, they can only do, they want to keep their jobs too. Right. I've been in a situation right. where I know A, B, C, D, and E would be better options than what I can legally say. Right. But if I want to keep my job and I don't want to have malpractice or any of those other yes. things yes. that are always looming, that of are course. always hovering over, then I need to keep them out of my uh, out of my mouth when I'm speaking and mm -hmm. definitely not putting in a in a record where it can be traced back to me. Right. And so that's that trickle down effect. But that's where, okay, knowing what we know, once you know, you can't unknow. So knowing that the system <laughs> is is not, you know, not healthy. Right. Then it comes now to that 
part of that blame is on the system, but then where's the responsibility as the client or the patient to make sure that we don't keep feeding into the broken system. And while I don't necessarily, there, there's a blame game that can be played. Mm-hmm. I'd like to reframe it in toward the personal responsibility and what responsibilities do we have as patients and clients to change a system that is continues to be broken. And that starts from the bottom up and the inside out and that trickle down top down is never going to happen. Um, right. And again, that, that requires a level of reassuming and reclaiming agency that we have haven't had and don't have on a day-to-day basis but it's not going to be given yeah and it's not going to ever be given we have to take it back right so i think that's important i think so actually yeah very critical so piggybacking off that last question that referred to like inferior care even to the level of malpractice can often lead to seriously injurious consequences why are women misdiagnosed more often than men? And what do our symptom, why do our symptoms go unrecognized, ignored, and even disputed or negated? I think mostly because our illnesses are frequently harder to diagnose. Right. Um, I am going back to autoimmune diseases again because they're especially difficult. But I think that there is something that women can do to, to reduce that a little bit. And one of the things I did notice and, and researched as I was surprised again is that women talk to their doctors differently from how men do. We describe right. our symptoms differently. We talk a lot more about um, our feelings and how we feel about something. And sometimes our physical symptoms can get buried under our emotional ones, and that can lead doctors down the wrong path. And I can see why. I mean, that makes Mm -hmm. sense. And I'm as guilty of that as anybody. I mean, I'll use myself as an example. I'll go in and I'll, um, let's say I have something silly like a sore throat, but I'll not only will I tell the doctor about my sore throat, but I'll explain, you know, it's making me tired and I have no Mm -hmm. energy and I can't go to work and I've got this project due and I'll end up getting uh, prescribed an antidepressant instead (laughs) of throat launch or something. (laughs) And so I think that's part, a small part of the issue. In fact, it was really interesting. They did a study where uh, kids or some interns, I guess they really weren't kids, were given letters written by cancer patients. And in well Mm. over half of the letters, they could tell which were written by men and which by women. Men Mm. are much more succinct, much more objective when they describe symptoms. Women, as I said, are more, use more flowery terms, more emotional terms, more interpersonal terms. And I think that we have to be careful that when we just, uh, I, I think it's important to tell the doctor our feelings for sure, but we have to be sure that we don't omit why we're there in the first place, which is yeah. the throat or the broken leg or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. And I think that especially happens when we talk about pain. Mm-hmm. Um, women will use pretty much every other word besides pain yes. to describe pain. Right. And so many times I'll say, okay, you have pain with menstruation. Okay. And they're like, no, it's not really pain. It's just kind of like mm, discomfort or, and then it's like, okay, you're talking into it. Okay. Does it stop you from what you're doing? Absolutely. Like I'm in bed all day or I have to, I'm like, okay, you've been in bed all day and are you taking pain medication for it? Yeah. i take so much pain medication, you know, and it still doesn't necessarily, you know, alleviate the pain. It doesn't, never really goes away. Okay. And on a scale of one to 10, I mean, what are we talking? Zero meaning no pain, 10 meaning the worst pain in your life. They're like, "Mm, it's about a nine and a half. Okay, so that is pain is what we're talking about. That's not discomfort. And even interfacing with another woman 
where, again, if anybody's going to be able to identify with what you're talking about, it's me. Of you're course. still downplaying it into a way that it's not so bad, but you're it's interfering with your activities of daily living. Right. It's that's more than discomfort and you shouldn't be living that way. Right. Or, you know, we just believe that, OK, pain is a part of this process and I just got to suck it up and deal with it. Pain is never normal. Pain is never healthy and pain is never acceptable. And that's one of those other ways that I feel that we mismanage our health because we also downplay the actual symptom. Right. Well, even every- if it's ever brought up. No, one of the women I interviewed suffered from endometriosis, which for those of you that don't know, is extremely painful. And it's extremely painful when you menstruate. I mean, you can help me with that if if I'm wrong. But my point is, she was sure that she was just whining and complaining. Everybody menstruates. Everybody has cramps. Why was she carrying on? She blamed herself. She finally went to the doctor and, you know, got it taken care of as best as possible because it's right. tricky to treat. But nevertheless, the point was her, her, her default position was I'm, I'm whining. I can't be in any more pain than anybody else. What, what's my problem? Um, yeah. And that is, that is just, that floors me because again, yeah. that also is that responsibility for actual communication. And that is something we can do. Right. Downplaying it is not helping anyone find the source and the underlying cause and the root cause of that. Right. And if you're telling me you're, you know, just mild discomfort, okay, I'm going to log that. Right. But that's not excruciating, you know, 12 out of 10 pain. That's about a two out of 10 pain when you're talking about mild discomfort. Right. But when you start talking about it, interfering with your activities of daily living and you're, you know, vomiting and throwing up and now you have headaches and you can't get out of bed, that's not discomfort. That is, irretractable pain that needs to be addressed. Right. But also in a whole person fashion. Yeah. So yeah again, that's where that personal responsibility um, mm-hmm. and, and blame game kind of intersect and where we kind of need to interrupt that pattern. Right. Well, these things are also interrelated. I mean, we, we say we're, we're, we're in discomfort because we're ashamed of feeling so much pain. I mean, it just, it, they all, you know, it all ties together. We want to play nice because yes. we're called the whiners. I mean, they all sort of come together in this pattern of not taking care of, or just not doing what we need to do to take the best care of ourselves. That's Absolutely. really, in a nutshell, what, what this yeah. book is about. Absolutely. And so one of my favorite chapters is chapter six, Pills for Every Ill, oh, where yeah. you discuss our being collective captives of the pharmaceutical industry. Again, one of the topics that I, you know, will talk ad nauseum if given enough time and space (laughs) um, is about birth control. And I see this so much, um, especially in regards to birth control, which is marketed as a hormone therapy when in essence, it is truly taking hormone disruptors or endocrine disruptors. Right. So for you, like you mentioned before, I think the condition was osteoporosis. And for many women, it's anything from painkillers to anti-anxiety or antidepressants to hormone replacement therapy. So how do you suggest we collectively escape from captivity and better yet, how to avoid becoming captives in the first place? I know captives is a good word. Well, I think women in the pharmaceutical companies, they really have a special relationship. The pharmaceutical companies love us. <laughs> First of all, we make about 80% of all healthcare decisions, purchasing mm-hmm. decisions. So that means we're worth a lot of money to those people. And right. so they target their ads directly towards us. And New Zealand and the United States are the only two countries in the world that allow pharmaceuticals to be marketed directly to consumers. 
And mm. those, those ads are so successful. I think for every every drug that is advertised sells nine times more than drugs that aren't. So, I mean, mm. that's really something to know. And these, these ads are aimed directly at us. I mean, for example, one of the things that, that women do is they put other people, for, we, we're caretakers. Mm-hmm. But, we do most of the caretaking in the world. I think that's universal. So if you'll notice, many of the ads will have children in it because, you know, of course, if I take the the pill that the drug company is promoting, I'm going to be a better mother. I mean, that's the underlying assumption. Messaging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah. I think that those the drug companies are well aware of the amount of money we can and do spend. So I think one way to avoid being a captive is to understand that these ads are really directed towards us. They know mm-hmm. how women th- how women think, you know, generally, of course, every woman mm-hmm. is different. And so that's how they write their ads. And as I said, they really work. Yeah. And I think, too, we really need to research. I mean, I always go back to research. I'll tell you another mm-hmm. little story. Um, I had a, a pain in my thumb. And because I'm a hypochondriac and a bit neurotic, which research like I do makes you, I mean, you know, you're sure you have every disease that you research. <laughs> so I decided maybe it was like the beginning of bone cancer or something. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I laughed at myself, but I trotted off to the doctor and, you know, it turned out to be thumb arthritis or something. But she gave me a pill for the pain or whatever. And, you know, I'm on an antidepressant. And so I said, now, does this interfere with Lexapro, which is the antidepressant? And she said, no, 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 not at all. No, no problem. So just because I'm me, I went home and I researched it. And, well, it really doesn't interfere with Lexapro, except, and it was a big except, for 1% of the patients, it can maybe cause a brain bleed. Well, now, if you're in the 1%, that's kind of, I mean, I'd rather have a sore thumb. I don't know about you, but right. I know. Right. So nothing, didn't take it. And I mean, it, I'm, my thumb is now fine. It just went away by itself. But so I, again, I think one way to avoid being a captive, again, is to do your own research, figure it out, because truly, I don't want to take a chance because my right thumb hurts of getting a brain bleed. I mean, that's a, the benefits, you know, do not outweigh the risks in any way, shape or form. Um, yeah. So absolutely so. Absolutely so. And I think that you you kind of just touched on it, but it's about the tendency to now you have a cocktail because you got something for your sore thumb. And now there's going to be a drug that's going to address something that might be a side effect of the drug that you're taking for your sore thumb. And now that can cause X, Y, Z symptoms. And then it becomes another drug to take care of the symptoms that you were taking for the initial medicine. But now we're already up to three. And so many times, and you know, literally a client list of medications that they're taking. I can't even like get through it because I'm thinking, what are all of these things? What are you taking them for? How long have you been taking them? Are you taking them consistently? Some of the medications are actually canceling each other out, so they're not working or ex, um, you know, exponentiating the the power mm-hmm. of the drug or diminishing the power of the drug. Right. And so it's like, okay, wait a minute. You've been taking this. How often do you take it? Were you told what how to take this? Were you taking this on an empty stomach? Are you taking it with food? Right. Nobody right. knows. Right. And so I never take anybody off anything because I was like, I wasn't the one who prescribed this. So I'm not going right. to, you know. But you need to get more educated, just like you did, about what are the side effects of this? And 
are there any drug interactions with this? And not, you can go to one doctor and get one medication. And if they don't even know that you're taking another medication, then they'll be like, no, it's good. There are not any interactions, but they don't know that the two or three or four other things that you've already been taking. And it's just that now, literally that captivity kind of thing, that phenomenon that you were talking about. And it's just like, wait a minute, well, we need I to think- walk away and free ourselves up because yeah. it's actually dangerous. And I think it's really important to, to go to every every doctor that you see. I think it's really important to take a list of your medications and take a, and, and write down the dosages and how often you right. take them because yeah. the doctor doesn't know. And, it, yeah. and, if, and if there is an interaction, you really need to know because I, I, it's a brain bleed. I mean, good grief. Yeah. And that's not something that's like, oh, it may cause a little bit of a brain bleed has the potential to be. Yes life-threatening right not just a little like oh it may cause insomnia okay yeah sometimes that's a little thing but like you said if you're in the one percent yeah your odds are good that it's not but if you are in that one percent based on whatever common factor that one percent has that's not a small thing for you right and again it's not to me it's not worth the risk and especially when the cocktails can continue to add up well and i also think and this needs to be mentioned that when when you do take in your list of medications and you do discuss with your doctor what you're taking. Don't leave out supplements, herbal supplements right. and that kind Absolutely. of Absolutely. If you're taking yeah. whatever you're taking, I don't care if it's calcium or St. John's. I mean, I don't take mm-hmm. anything. And that's because the supplement industry is not regulated. And right. so I would be very careful about taking supplements. But now that I've said that, the doctor needs to know because, you know, you help me with this, you know, better than I do. Right. <laughs> exactly. And I, th- but again, it's still important to know what you're taking, why you're taking it, how long you've been taking it. Are you taking it correctly? And again, not everything should be taken with food. Not everything should be taken on an empty stomach. Right. Should you be taking it with water? Should you be eating it with food? You know, that type of yes. thing. So it's really important to know how you're taking medications. And that's often not explained to patients. Very well. often. I think it was like only 50% of the doctors explained how long you should take it, when you should take it, what you should take it with, just everything you're saying. Yeah. I mean, it's, and that's another thing I went, I mean, I found out I should be taking my blood pressure medication at night. I didn't know mm-hmm. that, um, yeah. whatever. And those are things that affect how, you know, your, that medication is metabolized right. and affects how, again, the results that you're having. So if you're taking something at night when you should be taking it in the morning and it's never getting to, you know, a therapeutic level in your body, now right. you could potentially be getting your dose increased and you're taking more than you need to be taking all because you're not taking it in the way that it was, you know, designed to be taken. Yes. yes. Yeah. So when on an airplane, we're all familiar with the phrase, secure your mask before securing the mask of others. Yet women are pathologically guilty of putting others' needs before their own. So what do you feel undergirds this S on the chest phenomenon? Well, let me tell you something first that you're going to enjoy because (laughs) there was a little survey done where researchers asked women, you know, they gave them a list of five things to prioritize. What would they take or who or what would they take care of first? And, you know, first, of course, women would take care of their children. Secondly, and this is the part I love, they take care of their pets. Third was elderly parents. Fourth was their significant others. And then fifth, of course, was themselves. So we do definitely take care of ourselves last. And I think it goes back to, again, I mean, as I said, these things are tied together that we're ashamed. We're ashamed we don't feel well. We feel that it's up to us to 
constantly feel good so that we can take care of our families, produce at work, whatever our reasons are. And they're, of course, personal and individual. But the point is, we all have reasons why we shouldn't be sick. And so we put ourselves and frequently our health, often our health care last. And I don't think we realize that the better we feel, the better we can take care of others. I mean, it seems obvious when you're dragging around, you know, you're not at your best. Um, Nevertheless, I think, again, the blame and the shame about our bodies and about not being 100% effective 100% of the time makes women feel guilty, sad, and, and just badly about themselves. Right. And we cannot pour from empty cups. And so many times we're always trying to, you know, pour from this cup that has already been depleted by our own actions and activities and, you know, poor nutrition and things of that nature, but yet we're still trying to pour into someone else and it just, and it's not sustainable. Well, and I think too, that as women, we sometimes fail to realize in this, I know this was your other favorite chapter, but you gave me such yes. a good <laughs> Is that we fail to recognize that the minds, our minds and bodies are so connected. So when our body doesn't feel good, it does affect how we interact. It does affect how we feel about things. And I'll, this, this, I love this too. I gotta, I gotta tell you this, but just sure. to show you how important our bodies are to how we think. Researchers took two groups of students. And they put, you know, one group in one room and gave them some hot coffee. They put the other group in a different room and gave them some iced coffee. And then they gave them a fictitious character a statement about a guy or a girl. I don't mm-hmm. know about a person. And the, the, the students with the warm coffee liked the fictitious person much better than the people, than the students who would drink the iced coffee. The warm coffee must have made them feel sort of warm and fuzzy inside. Right. And I, it was a direct relationship. It was really interesting. So, yeah, and go ahead, continue. I was just going to say, so it's really important to realize the connection. And it works the other way. It was a different researchers, different study, but same idea. They took right. a group of students in one room and they asked them to write about a situation where they felt socially rejected. And then the other group wrote about a situation where they felt socially accepted. And the mm-hmm. socially accepted group judged the temperature of the room to be five degrees warmer than the socially rejected group. And so our minds affect our bodies, our bodies affect our minds. And so if you don't feel good, get thee to a doctor. Yes. And I, again, it's again, you're providing, that's where I guess we're just a good pair because you're providing a good segue <laughs> in that our, we're, our bodies are connected. And I think we so right. often try to, you know, emotional health and mental health over here, your physical health over here, your exactly. vocational health is over here, right. but yet our hands aren't disconnected from our wrists and our wrists aren't disconnected from our shoulders and our legs aren't just walking around on their own. Our torsos are connected to our chest and (laughs) our thighs. So how can we expect that, you know, our tendons, our joints and our bones and, you know, our neurons and transmitters and hormones, all those things, they're all happening in one, in one body. So to try to like, you know, divvy out and, you know, disconnect everything is actually antithetical and it's like doing a disservice when you're trying to treat the whole person. And like you said, my second favorite chapter is chapter five. Um, it's my body, myself. Yes. And it talks about addresses the role of emotions in recovery. And as an integrated women's health and reproductive medicine provider, 
I examine emotions as a cause of disease right. in a way that conventional medicine just does not. So right. please share with us the role that unresolved worry, grief, fear, anger, and even sadness plays in our health, wellness, and overall healing. Well, I think it plays a huge role. And I think there's no question of the connection between stress and inflammation, stress and a lower immune system. I think, again, uh, one of the things that I failed to talk about and really meant to, which is sort of an answer to your question, is placebos, talking about mm -hmm. how the mind affects the body. And for, for those people that don't know what a placebo is, would you describe it as a sugar pill? I guess I would say there's no... It has or water, even a water pill. Yeah, because yeah, there's nothing right. in it at all <laughs> that would affect anything. It's got right. it has zero medicinal value, but yet right. they're highly successful in treating some diseases. And I wanted to read you this. I even made a note just because I think your audience will be really interesting. But for okay. example, now remember, these are pills that have nothing in them, but mm -hmm. two placebos work better than one. Capsules are more effective than pills are. Pink or red placebo pills are, will stimulate, have stimulant effects. A blue placebo, a placebo pill will act as a sedative. And green pills seem to be most effective for anxiety. Placebo injections are more, wait, wait, I lost my place. Placebo injections are more effective than placebo capsules and pills. And injections are more effective in women than in men, which I thought was really interesting. Wow. And then last but not least, but old placebo drugs seem to become less effective as new ones come along. So mm -hmm. there's, this is all in our heads. And yet they work. And even more fascinating is they did some work at Harvard. And, you know, that you, you have to tell a patient when they're getting a placebo. You can't right. just lie about it. So the doctor, and they work anyway, even though the mm -hmm. knows it's, yeah. So am I right? <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. And I, I think that's why we impress upon affirmations and visualizations. Because, again, there is no medicinal pharmaceutical value in words. And there's nothing that's being injected into your body. There's nothing that you're ingesting, but you are ingesting the positivity. You right. are taking that in, you are receiving that, and you're giving that right back to yourself. So yes. again, in some there is value in it, and it doesn't require any alteration, pharmaceutical or otherwise, right. in your body chemistry, except for it's feeding you positivity. You're digesting, ingesting positivity in a way that you haven't before, but it's still going to affect affect change. And that's where visualizations and positive affirmations can go a long way when they're done consistently, you know, in a way that's going to, again, be affirming and strengthening and empowering a person. Well, and I think that if we accept, which of course we all do, or most of us do, that, a, that the, the positivity um, really helps you recover, then we also have to accept that sadness, depression, etc., can help you not recover. Let's, I don't know that it will make you sick, but it certainly lowers your immune system, et cetera. Absolutely. And that's not even debatable. That's definitely right. medical fact that those can strain the immune system and vice versa. Right. right. So Sidelined is an advocacy book, one that shows readers how to take charge of their health, make informed decisions, and leave their appointments with answers instead of more unanswered questions. Are there any additional resources or supports that you suggest for our listeners who are interested in learning more about how to become more proactive as advocates for themselves in terms of their health, wellness, and healing, and also overcoming the gender bias that is present in the medical industry? 
I think really the resources I would recommend, I have a huge bibliography at the back of the book. Perfect. <clears throat> and it gives you, excuse me, gives you all the references that I use Perfect. so that people can, you know, do further research if they want to. Okay. And that, and you mentioned that earlier on, so I'm going to make sure I include that in the show yes. notes to focus on the biblio. Yes. That's Absolutely. perfect. Absolutely. And before we end, um, any parting words of wisdom? Yes, 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 yes. And thank you for asking that. Please take charge of your health. Please don't be afraid to speak up. Hopefully you won't be known as a difficult patient. And if you are, it may be time to either speak up about that or as you suggested, don't go back to that doctor. But it's so important to advocate for yourself, to get second opinions, to do your own research so that you're totally comfortable that your diagnosis is accurate and that you're doing the best thing you can do for your own health. That's my Susan, that's I could my- talk to you for hours because like you said, you love to talk and so do I. And this is how what makes a good conversation. And you hit so many of these nails on the head. So thank you so much for your enthusiasm, for sharing your book, for writing your book. And just, you know, giving us the the empowerment and giving us the the idea that we can do something different and we can, you know, recharge ourselves and be advocates for ourselves in the healthcare lane and industry. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thanks for joining Women's Health Wisdom and Wine. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Think about one gem you can take away from this episode and apply it to your own life. Also, remember to follow us, review us, and give us five stars. Till we meet again, remember, nourish your flourish.